Well, good morning. It's so good to be back um, here in Duncan worshiping um, with my church family. Thank you for letting my family take a, a week off. My wife enjoyed it so much. She's staying for another week with the kids in Florida, um, so they'll be back here next week. Um, but I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I was reading this book, The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck, and I, I finished it, but it's the story of an Oklahoma family named the Jodes, and they are seeking refuge during the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Now, the land's ruined because, you know, the Dust Bowl, if you don't know about that, go look it up. And then they end up being kicked off of their land. But they read this pamphlet that promises them jobs and money and all they could ever dream of and refuge in California. So they're desperate and they sell all that they have for basically pennies. Take a vehicle they got, they kind of chop it up and convert it into a truck, pack everything they have on it, and head out. And the book kind of follows this poor family's journey of seeking refuge. Now, we may not be like the Jode family, thankfully, though it feels like it some days because of how hot it is here. But all of us have been desperate refugees in need of help. Maybe you've been financially desperate and you didn't know how you would make ends meet or pay that bill that's coming up. Maybe you've been emotionally desperate and lonely. You've watched as your marriage has crumbled around you or relationships that once were meant so much to you. Maybe you've been desperate as you've watched the ones that you love die. Or maybe, you know, you might not even describe yourself as a refugee, right? That's kind of strong language and we don't like to think ourselves in those terms. But all of us have been desperate at least at some moment in our life where we had nowhere else to turn or we didn't know where to go. Our passage this morning in Psalm 34, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, is about how God sees the refugee. We've been talking about Psalms of Blessing, and it's really not just how God sees the refugee, but about how God blesses the refugee, the person who is desperate and who comes to him seeking help. So if you would, stand with me as we read from God's Word, Psalms 23. And it's a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. In verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all of his troubles. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, and listen to me. I will teach you of the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against all those who do evil to cut them from the memory of the earth. But when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. 
Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps his bones, and not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, but those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and none who take refuge in him will be condemned. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would continue to be here this morning, that you would breathe on us. That as the breath of your words have just been read among us, Lord, that our hearts would be open and that we would hear them. Lord, would your spirit illuminate your word? Would you use me as I attempt to just explain and show what your words have to say to us this morning? Would we leave this place having worshipped you, having heard you, and having been changed by you? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at three points. We're really going to see how God has blessed the refugee in the past, the present, and the future. And so our first point, if you're taking notes in your bulletin, is that God has blessed refugees in the past. That God has blessed refugees in the past. And specifically, these first 10 verses are looking and focus on how God has blessed particularly King David in the past. Now, we don't always get context for the Psalms when we read them. In fact, most of them we don't. And really, you don't need it most of the time because they're, they're more universal. They can be understood pretty clearly. They're straightforward. But this Psalm gives us some context. It tells us exactly when this happened in David's life, when he wrote it contextually. Now, a little note at the top, you know, it says of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. So that he drove him out and he went away. So if you don't know that story... If you've heard it and you can't remember the details, you can read about it further in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And I'll summarize it quickly. David, right, he'd been anointed by the prophet Samuel and said, you are going to be the king. There's a problem. There was another king and his name was Saul. And Saul wasn't so happy to hear this news. And Saul didn't really like David. And everybody knew that David was going to be king and they kind of wished he would have been king and they liked him more than Saul. But Saul wouldn't submit to God's will, so he decided he was going to kill David. So at this point in the story, David flees the country, he leaves, he finds himself in a foreign land named Gath. But he's afraid, because these are God's enemies. And so he doesn't know what's going to happen, is God really going to protect me? So when he comes before Abimelech the king, he decides he's just going to pretend to be crazy. So he starts drooling all over himself, he starts you know, scribbling on the walls and just acting as crazy as can be. And it must have been convincing because Abimelech just goes, this guy's out of his mind, washes his hands, just ignores him, leaves him alone. So it's after this moment, okay, after doing that, after acting in a pretty embarrassing fashion, being delivered from that, David writes this psalm. And he begins in verse 1 in a strange place. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. He begins to praise God. It's probably not what I would do. If I was David, and that's just what had happened to me. Okay, David's in poverty. He's got nothing, no one. He's left his land, his position, his wealth, his influence. He just had to pretend to be a crazy person in order to be left alone. And yet, I would be complaining. Okay, I would be lamenting. Woe is me. How could you let this happen? But David is praising God. Verse 2, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. David is trying to lead a worship service. Is what he's doing. He looks around and says, guys, let's praise God. Isn't he amazing? Look at this. But how and why could David do this? He tells us in verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. 
He delivered me from all of my fears. He's praising God because God answered his prayers. He sought refuge in God's arms during his lowest moments and received deliverance and salvation. At this moment, David doesn't feel depressed. He feels blessed and excited. In verse 5, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. David doesn't have any shame right now. I would be ashamed. I would be embarrassed. I wouldn't tell people this story. I wouldn't write it down. But David acknowledges it. He's radiant. He's got a big smile on his face. Verse 6, he says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. Saved him out of all of his troubles. David acknowledges he's nothing but a poor refugee. But he is one that God heard and God saved. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord, he encamps around those who fear him and delivers us. This isn't really a statement about us having individual guardian angels. The Bible doesn't really say anything about that. But most of the time we see whenever it says the angel of the Lord, especially in the Old Testament, that appears to be Jesus, appearing miraculously before his incarnation in the virgin birth. So really what this is about, it is about the divine protection, I think, that Jesus brings for those who seek his face. That when you run to God for help, that Jesus encamps around you. That he figuratively sets up his tent over you to keep you safe. That while you sleep, Jesus is awake and he's walking around to keep watch. To make sure that nothing comes to harm you. And David wants you and me to experience this kind of deliverance. In verse 8, oh taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. David says that the deliverance and blessing God has given him, particularly in this instance, is available to all. Anyone who wants it. And this is why we should study how God has acted in the past. That's why we read this old book with stories from way long ago. Because we can know and trust that God can and will do again what he has done once before. David invites us, come taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good. That anyone who takes refuge in God can get the same blessing. It's not just for anointed kings of Israel. It is for anyone who wants it. Verse 9, O oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. He mentions the fear and the respect of the Lord. He must have told his son Solomon about it. Because it comes up repeatedly in the book of Proverbs. The lesson is we are to fear and respect God more than we fear any circumstance. More than anything that would happen to us. Because if we fear God, then we run to Him and we never need to be afraid. That whenever we are afraid in our lives, we, it should make us run to God just like my son runs to me whenever he sees a dog. Okay, because he doesn't really like them. You know, it's a small chihuahua in Walmart in a basket. If he sees it, he runs to me and wants me to pick him up because he's scared. Why? Well, he knows I'm going to keep him safe. And in my arms, he feels okay. When you feel fear, when there are things and circumstances in your life that make you want to run, the place you should run is you should run into the arms of Jesus. And he will pick you up and he will hold you like a little child and keep you safe. Verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Okay, does that remind you of another saint in the past who was protected? I don't think this is just poetry and imagery here. I think David is alluding to Daniel's deliverance in that lion's den in Daniel 6. 
We studied this story back when we walked through the book of Daniel. If you missed that Sunday, or you can go back, you can listen to it. But Daniel, he refused to bow to the unjust laws that said you can only pray to Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel said, no, I think I'm going to keep praying to God. And he was obedient, and for his obedience, he was thrown in a lion's den. But God delivered him. God kept him safe. The lions were starving and hungry, and God shut their mouths, and they stayed hungry. And they left Daniel alone. David is inviting us to go back through God's resume, to look at his CV, to search the scriptures, to look through all of history and see all of the times that our God has been faithful, all the times that he has saved those in need. Our faith it is not the story of people who are just rich and successful and everything always worked out just how they wanted. Our story is a story of refugees finding salvation in the Lord and the Lord alone. Noah on the ark being saved from the flood. Abraham saved from childlessness, which was the biggest shame at that point. Joseph saved from prison and slavery. Naomi and Ruth saved from poverty and being widows left alone to fend for themselves. Israel saved from slavery in Egypt and time and time and time and time again in their history. Nehemiah saved from the oppressors who opposed them and wanted to keep Israel in bondage again. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saved from the fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down to idols. Paul saved from poisonous snakes and shipwrecks and Stephen being saved even as he was stoned to death because he looked up and saw what was coming. This crowd of witnesses stands before you declaring that God has been faithful to refugees in the past. You can read Hebrews 11 and you can hear their voices still speaking right now telling you, our God is faithful. Our God saved us and he will save you too. You can trust him. So our God has blessed and saved refugees in the past, but what about today? Well, we can still trust Him to do the same thing. Point number two, God is still blessing refugees today. God is still blessing refugees today. God has not hung up His boots. Okay, God is not retired and just relaxing on the beach somewhere. God is still blessing and saving those who are in need today. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are to the righteous. And his ears are towards their cry. Right now, God is looking at the righteous, at his saints. He's watching over them. He will notice when someone attacks them. He will see when be demons begin to crowd around and start to hatch a plan to attack you. God sees it. He's watching. And his ears are towards your cry. He is listening out for you actively. He doesn't have his headphones in because he's busy listening to something else. And when you cry, your voice will go out from your mouth and go all the way up into the temple of heaven, right to the throne of God and into his ears. And he hears it the moment it leaves your lips. And he does more than just watch and listen. After all, what comfort would it be if God is watching, but he never does anything? Or he hears us, but he never speaks back. Verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. This phrase, the face of the Lord, right? It's his disposition. It is that he opposes the wicked. He stands himself up against them. He stands in front of them to resist them. And this is not an empty threat. 
He doesn't just say, I'll fight them. He says, I'm going to obliterate them so much that the, all memory of them will disappear from the face of the earth. This means as one day you will forget the name of Satan. You will have to be reminded one day what a demon is because you forgot. It will be so long since you have heard of wickedness, you will have to pull up a dictionary to see what it means. That is a great comfort of what our God will do and what he does now. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. In case you didn't understand, he hears, he hears and he acts. When we cry out to God, he comes to deliver. He actually moves in history today, still, even at this moment, and he comes to help. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves the crushed in spirit. This is one of my favorite verses in all of the Psalms. Again, this is current. He is near. This is not about what God used to do one day. This is not about what God will do one day. This is not about what God does sometimes if he gets around to it. This is about what God does right now here in this room. He is close to the brokenhearted. If you're crushed, if you're weak, if you're depressed, if you feel like you don't know how to go on, if you feel like there's too much depending on you, the Lord is near to you right now in this moment. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. But you notice, too, it says that God only takes these actions to the righteous. But who really is righteous? What does that mean? Now we'll go back to verse 11 to 14, in case you thought I skipped it. I did it on purpose. Now these verses, they describe the righteous person, the one that God takes these actions to that he saves. In verse 11, it says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So God's inviting us to come and listen. He's going to teach us what does it mean to be righteous. Part of righteousness means fearing the Lord. It means we listen when he speaks. When we read his word, we don't just, you know, start listening to something else or tune out. We don't treat his words as if they're just cute advice that somebody thought up many years ago. We treat them and we treat him as if he really is the king of the cosmos and the creator of the world. And we have tremendous respect for him as God. We fear him. Verse 12, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? This verse is a little strange just because it's rhetorical, right? He's asking a rhetorical question. The answer is, well, duh, everybody. Okay, everybody wants to live a nice, long, good life. And we want lives filled with good. Nobody wants to sign up for a life filled with lots of pain and suffering and not much else. But what David is saying here is you can't get that kind of life on your own. The psalmist is saying that the blessings of God, they only come from God. They don't come from you. And you can't get those on your own. Verse 13, it gives us the answer and a little further picture of righteousness. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. So the righteous are those who control their tongues, like James warns us. The righteous don't lie. They don't spread falsehoods. The righteous don't gossip. They don't spread rumors about others just for fun. But why all this focus on the tongue? Well, because as Jesus says in Luke 6.45, out of the heart the mouth speaks. You don't ever say anything that you don't mean. 
you just might say something you wish others hadn't heard. Our tongues really reveal what's inside of our hearts and whether there's really righteousness there or not. And, and he continues in verse 14, Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The righteous don't just talk good, but they actually live out lives of righteousness. Right? They actually repent and turn away from their sin. They set their face against it just like God. They do good and they act out good and they do good. They, they talk and they walk. And everything that they do and say is good and righteous. They seek peace and pursue it. They don't just seek to win. They're not just seeking to fight against other people. They're pursuing peaceful righteousness even when it's unpopular. Even when it seems unsuccessful. Even when other people abandon the peace and gentleness of Jesus, they still pursue peace and righteousness. This is a picture of the righteous. And I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Okay, this isn't a standard that says, okay, you need to make sure you, do, you are this holy this week in order for God to hear you. Although in another sense there is. But the problem is we're never going to be righteous on our own. Okay, that standard of holiness we cannot match. You'll never be righteous enough on your own. But however, if put your faith in Jesus. If you repent and you believe in the gospel, if you believe that Jesus Christ it really is the Son of God, God Himself, who died and was resurrected for your sins. Then Christ's righteousness is credited to your account. Then you get to be considered righteous. Not because of how good you are, but because of how good Jesus was and is. And because Christ's blood and forgiveness, all of us can be righteous. And for the righteous, those who believe in Jesus, God is active. If you've put your faith in Him, He is here right now in this place at Tanglewood Bible Fellowship. He is active in your life. He hears your cry and your prayers. You are not alone. Our God is still blessing refugees today. Point number three, so He's done it in the past, He's still in need today. And point number three, in the future, God will bless all who take refuge in Jesus. God will bless all who take refuge in Jesus. If you're desperate for help, if you have nowhere else to turn, there is a place of refuge, and it is in the person of Jesus Christ. That is where you can go. And anyone and everyone who turns to Jesus will be blessed and saved. But notice, this blessing doesn't mean no suffering. This blessing doesn't always mean success. This blessing does not mean that you are promised and always to have a long and happy marriage. It doesn't mean that you're going to have a great house with air conditioning that always works and plenty of money in the bank. Sometimes that blessing still means afflictions and suffering. And sometimes it means profound suffering. The Bible never promises that Christians will not suffer. Most of the time Jesus tried to tell and warn his disciples, hey, suffering's coming. Be ready. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. It's not just, hey, sometimes, guys, you might have some problems. It is many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. We will have suffering in this life, but our God will deliver us. Your afflictions and your suffering are not the end of the story. All that we have to do is look to Jesus. 
to take refuge in Christ. And in fact, the psalm, it actually intentionally prophesies and foreshadows Jesus, especially in these last several verses. Jesus himself suffered many afflictions, physical and spiritual afflictions, right? He suffered being rejected by the crowds, that he worked and he healed and he did all of these miracles for and loved and spent all of his time with and they all turned his back on. He suffered being ignored even by some of the people that he had healed, like the lepers who he heals and then they just go about their business, don't even come back to say thank you. He suffered from his disciples' continual lack of faith when they should know better. He suffered being betrayed by Judas, somebody who he had been with every single day and loved and cared for. He suffered physically, particularly at his arrest and his crucifixion. Suffered the indignity of being slapped on the face by an official during his sham of a trial. He was suffered being stripped naked in front of a crowd who mocked and laughed and pointed at him. He was flogged till he couldn't stand anymore. Nails and metal ripped his back to shreds. He was blindfolded and beaten while men joked and asked him to prophesy. Crown of thorns was hammered onto his head. He was forced to carry that big piece of wood up a hill as far as he could and he didn't make it very far because many were his afflictions. And they nailed our God to a piece of wood. They pierced his wrists so he wouldn't slide down, and they pierced his feet so he wouldn't go anywhere. And he hung there for hours as he struggled to breathe, having to pull that broken, shredded back up a piece of wood for every single breath. Every second was a battle. And when he was thirsty and dehydrated, they gave him some vinegar. She imagined dumped out all over him too, which probably didn't feel very good, to say the least. I think it's fair to say that our God knows what affliction is. That he felt it on his very skin, that his body, when you see it one day, will still have the scars to prove it. But look at verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Okay, this was prophetically fulfilled in Jesus, right? At the crucifixion, you eventually you die from asphyxiation. You can't breathe. So you suffocate. You struggle to breathe. You're pulling yourself over and over until you don't have any strength left. So when it got too long and the Romans got bored, they'd break your legs so you could die quicker. So they're bored. They want to go home and they go to break Jesus' legs, but he's already dead. Now, I don't think this verse was just given by us by God to fulfill that would happen prophetically, though it did, and it's incredible that God did that so far ahead of time. But there's also a point behind that. Point is, even at the midst of all of that unimaginable suffering, God was in control. Even though he suffered more than we could imagine, God protected him. He did not suffer one iota more than God planned. Not a single drop of blood left our Lord's body that God didn't allow or plan on before the foundation of the world. He didn't spend a single moment alive longer than God wanted him to or than he wanted to. Jesus' very bones were still protected, even in the midst of many afflictions. How does this apply to us? I don't think this means that God's going to keep you from breaking your literal physical bones. 
Okay, many of you have probably already broken bones. You understand that's not the right way to read this. But I do think it means that God will keep us safe. Think about like your spiritual bones. Right, through faith, even though every bone in your body may break, God will sustain you. If you take refuge in Jesus, God can sustain you in suffering. You can persevere and survive. Maybe not on this side of eternity, but you will live forever if you take refuge in Jesus. And what's amazing about taking refuge in God, He doesn't just protect us from suffering. He doesn't just throw His body over us to keep the blows from hitting us and make it not that bad and then leave us alone. Look at verse 21 to see what else will God will do. Verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. God will slay the wicked. That those who attack Christ's bride will be punished. The oppressor, the wicked will die. They will face God's justice. People talk down about God's judgment. Right? We like to speak about it as if it's mean or archaic. But those who have suffered a long time, particularly at the hands of someone else, you long for the justice of God. You have those who have fled oppressive governments, those who have had their loved ones murdered, their livelihood stolen from them, or any other kind of injustice. Those people long for someone to make it right. And one day God will. One day God will bring true, perfect, pure justice. And we don't get to vote on what it will look like, thankfully. But those who take refuge in Jesus, they will be saved from the wrath of God. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. None. Not a single person. Not a single one who puts their faith in Jesus will be punished when he returns. And he comes in the days of Elijah. They will escape the fires of hell and be redeemed. And we won't be condemned. You will get to stand before the judgment seat of God without fear. Not because of your own goodness or your own resume, but because of the righteousness of Jesus that you have put your faith in. I haven't mentioned it before. If you noticed or not, Rob might have been wondering what if I would ever say it. But the psalm is actually an acrostic. Okay, so what that means, you can't tell it in, he in English because we lose the poetry when we translate things from Hebrew to English some because that's kind of hard to get exactly the same word and make it rhyme and make it work, you know, the way Hebrew poetry works. But it being an acrostic, it means that every line of the psalm begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet going from the beginning all the way to the end. So the first line begins, you know, with A or Aleph, and then second line is B until you get all the way to Z. Again, English, but Hebrew alphabet. So why does he do that? Well, lyrically and poetically, David is trying to communicate something. He's trying to tell you, even in the way that he structured and wrote this psalm, that God has been faithful to refugees from A to Z, from the beginning to the end and everything in between. You can trust our God. We can be confident that God will continue to bless those who take, refuge, who take refuge in Jesus in the future. And our deliverance, it only comes from one source. It comes through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We can only be saved because of Him. Our sin and our wickedness from our first breath, it leaves us broken. Our choices after all the rest of those breaths, they leave us condemned and far short of the glory of God and His standard of holiness. 
And fairness and justice would be all of our condemnation and suffering. But Jesus, the Son of God, took our punishment on our shoulders. He died in our place. And then he came back to life to prove that God's sacrifice had been accepted, proof that our sins had been atoned for. And now we know that anyone who seeks refuge in the bosom of Christ will be saved. And we can experience salvation and eternal life now. And one day Jesus will return. He'll ride across the sky like we sang, and he will save everyone who takes refuge in him. But listen, there's no other place you can go for refuge. None. Yeah, our world would have you believe Christianity is just a nice option, but there's plenty of others out there. As if faith in Jesus is just one shelter possible that you could take from the storms of life. And there's plenty of other valid options. They're all just as good, so don't worry. Do what you want. Beloved, this is not so. I want you to picture the tornado sirens blaring over, all over town, but not, you know, 12 on Monday or the practice. Like, then you go outside to look, and there's really a massive tornado, and you can see it, and it's heading right towards your house. Okay, you need to seek refuge. You need to go somewhere that's going to keep you safe. You don't sit on the ground and start to meditate and try to find nirvana and pretend, you know, suffering, it's all just imagined, and this tornado's not real, and I can just, you know, I can try this and see if that works. You don't pick up a self-help book and try to make yourself good enough that maybe the tornado will miss you because you're so awesome. You don't believe that all your exercise in the silver sneakers class or whatever means you have is going to make you strong enough. Right? And think, well, I got a good belt. I'm going to tie it to something. I'm just going to hold on and I'm going to be just fine because I can do this on my own. There is only one shelter that can keep you safe when Jesus returns. And that storm shelter is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to run there. We have to dive into that with all of our hearts and all of our belief and find our only salvation and refuge. And anyone that runs there will be saved. Anybody outside of there will not. Summary where we've been this morning, we looked at how God blesses, He's blessed refugees in the past, the present, and He will do so again in the future. I want to close with a story about actual refugees. When I was attending seminary in Dallas, I got to spend a couple of years um, working with political refugees, really from all over the world. Um, and during that time, I learned a lot about what that means and the process of how people actually get to come here as, as refugees. So you can imagine it's a political process. So it's cumbersome, long, and lots of red tape. Most of the refugees I met, they spent years before they were allowed in the country. Most of the ones I knew spent around seven years. I knew someone who spent as long as 20 waiting to find refuge. Because in order to be considered a refugee, you don't just flee your country and show up somewhere else. You actually have to prove to the government that you are a, refu a refugee who deserves to be saved and to find help, which can be difficult. Okay, imagine, which some of these people I didn't met didn't have to imagine. You flee your country because people show up with guns and they kill your family. And so you run. You, you flee away. You just keep going because they're going to find you. They started killing anybody. Maybe you voted like you. You're in the wrong tribe. You're the wrong kind of Muslim or you're a Christian. So you have to flee and get help. So you fled, you find yourself at a government office, and now they want some documentation and proof 
that somebody really did kill your family and they killed them specifically because they were Christians. You know, well, that's kind of hard to prove. I, you know, I didn't stop to document stuff when I was fleeing for my life. I was just trying to get away. I mean, you ever gone to the DMV and you forgot the wrong form or this other proof of residence? You know, that's really annoying and frustrating, but really just requires another drive. Okay, for most refugees, they can't go back and find these things. Because then they have to prove, well, I can't go back. Someone's going to kill me. We'll prove it. Well, I only know one good way to prove it, and I don't want to do that. Okay, and then after that, you get all these interviews and processes and background checks. And assuming you go through all of that, let's just assume you have all of your stuff and you fill out, you dot all your I's and you have it good, you have to get in a long line. Because most countries have a limit of how many refugees they'll take. In the United States, we took about 11,000 last year. Max right now is 62. Not that many. Now, why do I mention all this? I'm not trying to make any political point. What I'm trying to say is God is not like that. There's no long list of requirements in order to be saved by God. You don't have to prove to God why you need his help. You don't have to write out a long, good argument for, I've been working on this, God. Let me tell you why I really think you should help me. Uh, I've been working. I've got a big brief that I need you to see. So now you've got to help me because my argument is solid. You don't have to argue with Jesus in order to get him to save you. There's no limit to God's mercy either. You don't go and say, man, well, I hope he's got room for me. Jesus is going to say, well, hey, try again next year. I've saved a lot of people today. So why don't you get in line? Maybe I'll get to you eventually when I have time. There's no limit to God's grace. All you have to do is take refuge in God. You don't even need a complicated prayer. You could simply whisper, help me, Jesus. And if you don't have the words, you can just pray it in your heart because God can hear that too. And any prayer of refuge said in faith will be heard and answered by God. Because God hears and blesses all who take refuge in him then, now, and forever. Let's pray. Lord, I, I am so grateful that you saved a poor man like me and to people like us, that you sent your son to die, to shed his blood, to save an undeserving, rebellious, foolish people like us. Not just because you pitied us or you felt bad for us, but because somehow you love us in your grace. Lord, thank you. Lord, would you, we need more of your grace. Would you strengthen us as we take refuge in, in you? Would you help us? Would you help us to run to you instead of ourselves? Would you help us to run to you instead of substances? Would you help us to run to you instead of whatever other place it is that we run that we need help? Would you help us to run to you alone because you alone are the only place who can keep us safe? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Our God is faithful forever. Um, before I read our benediction, I just want to remind you, invite you to come back on, on Wednesday. Um, and if you've read the newsletter, which you've probably seen a little bit of what it will be about, which if you don't read the newsletter, you should. Um, but I've just been planning on talking a little bit about what does it mean to be human. Um, our anthropology is probably one of the biggest um, theological issues now and will be in the future. Um, so we're just going to spend some time. It'll be a couple weeks. I haven't planned it all out so I can 
it may go a while. Um, but we'll just we'll start talking about what does the Bible say it really means to, to be a person and what makes that. And then we'll kind of slowly start to walk through and unpack, okay, well, how does that impact what the Bible says about sexuality, about our gender, about all these all of these things. So that's where we're going to be there um, in case my, my blurb was unclear. Um, but here's our benediction from 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Because of the faithfulness of God, therefore, my, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God bless you. Go in peace.